welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by my colleagues. Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Dalek Borohaj, also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, we're honored and thrilled to welcome Anders Fogh Rasmussen, former NATO Secretary General, currently CEO of Rasmussen Global, on our show. Um, welcome. It's great to have you with us. And uh, we want to start broad with you being here in D.C. and now on almost a regular basis, um, lobbying for more support for Ukraine, something that we've been trying to do on this podcast too for a while now. And um, we're looking now at the beginning of 2024 at a year of super elections, if you'd like, with many European countries, EU elections as well, and of course elections here in the United States. And arguably, it's also a pivotal re a year for Ukraine. So um, where do you think we are standing in the war itself? And of course, in the vitally needed support for Ukraine? Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me. Uh, it's correct that I'm uh, currently in uh, D.C. to visit uh, Congress uh, and speak in um, during media to deliver messages uh, of how important it is to stay the course, continue our support uh, for Ukraine. Now, um, right now we're seeing an intensified Russian attack uh, against uh, Ukraine. After the war broke out between Israel and Hamas, uh, Putin has decided to uh, exploit that opportunity uh, to reinforce uh, his offensive against Ukraine. So consequently, the Ukrainians have reorganized their troops and they have now focused on strategic uh, defense. But Pending our decisions uh, on uh, new weapon deliveries, I would expect a new Ukrainian offensive uh, early spring. Uh, pending uh, Western weapons deliveries, that's a big asterisk that you've put in there. Uh, you have been making the rounds uh, around DC and in particular talking to a number of the um, the so-called Freedom Caucus or the, the highly conservative members of the House of Representatives that now really represent the largest block of skeptics and almost opponents. Um, without portraying any confidences from your meeting, I wonder if you could give us a sense of how their attitudes might be changed or be changing. Yeah. I had a very open and frank discussion with some members of the so-called uh, Freedom Caucus because I have noted that they are skeptics about continuing the assistance uh, for Ukraine. So what I wanted to do was to convey two messages. Uh, firstly, it is not in the US national security interest 
to withdraw from Ukraine and uh, let the Russians win. On the contrary, it would run uh, directly against vital U.S. interests. And the other message I wanted to convey is that the Europeans do their fair share of the task. Because I have noted that they have used as an argument against continued American support for Ukraine that Europeans do not step up to the plate. So, I, can, I deliver to them new updated figures. And the fact is that Europeans have now surpassed the US when it comes to assistance for Ukraine. If we have a look at the military aid, uh, the Europeans have delivered uh, military aid at a value of 59 billion uh, US dollars. The US have has delivered equivalent to 49 billion euros. And if we add to that directly financial assistance, the difference is even greater. Uh, the Europeans have delivered 166 billion dollars. The US has delivered 77 billion dollars. And these figures were actually a surprise uh, for many of the participants in the meeting. So I hope that could contribute to a change of their views. I think you're, you're providing a very charitable reading of, of the situation in, 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 in my view. I do fear that some of these legislators might not be approaching these conversations entirely in good faith. We've seen how the arguments have been changing. Initially, uh, the claim was that what happens in Ukraine is totally irrelevant to America's national interest, that we should focus on the Indo-Pacific. Then the argument was that Europeans are not paying their fair share. You know, that has proven to be incorrect. Then the argument was that the Biden administration had no strategy for victory. Now, you know, the border security issue is being bundled together with, with, with the Ukraine aid. And, and when, you know, Senate uh, and and the White House do work out a compromise on border security. You still have to wonder whether the Speaker of the House will bring a bill, compromise bill, to the floor. Um, is your sense, and again, this might be, you know, asking you to betray confidence. Is, is is your sense from these conversations that we really are facing a substantive disagreement on which compromise is possible? or whether all these issues are serving just as an excuse for, for, for the Freedom Caucus to you know, oppose any aid to Ukraine, that, that essentially you know, ending aid to Ukraine and helping Putin is, is, is the end game for them. Yeah, I, I won't exclude the possibility that for some members of Congress uh, it is about creating as much chaos uh, as possible and they are completely resistant uh, when it comes to uh, rational uh, arguments. Um, but uh, I have argued uh, that the Democrats uh, should accommodate some of the Republican concerns uh, regarding uh, the border issue and migration uh, issue so that a package with four elements could be passed in Congress. Firstly, aid for Ukraine, secondly, aid for Israel, third, aid for Taiwan, and then fourth, uh, a resolution to the issues on border and uh, migration. 
Uh, on the latter, I think it would also serve the interests uh, of the Democrats to actually compromise and get that uh, matter closed and off the table before uh, the election campaign uh, start uh, in, uh, in earnest. On your first part of your question, namely uh, the U.S. national security interest, I think we should step up our efforts to counter that argument because it's extremely dangerous to believe uh, that this is a trade-off uh, between supporting Ukraine or supporting uh, Taiwan. Uh, the fact is that the two conflicts are interrelated. If Putin wins in Ukraine, um, then it would encourage uh, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping would conclude that if Putin can take Crimea, then I can take Taiwan. Uh, and if uh, the U.S. retreats uh, from Ukraine, maybe Europe, uh, then it would only uh, strengthen what I would call the axis of autocracies, led by China, joined by uh, Russia, Iran, uh, North Korea, and it would actually contribute to a new world order where the Chinese will set the global norms and standards for trade, for emerging technology, etc., because their aim is to reduce the influence of the United States. And all Americans should realize this is what the whole conflict is about. And finally, uh, if the U.S. reduces its engagement in Europe and withdraw from uh, Ukraine, then you risk losing Europe as well, because that would fuel those uh, movements in Europe uh, that are arguing for um, uh, a weaker transatlantic alliance. Uh, they are arguing that Europe should act as, so to speak, a neutral moderator between Washington and uh, Beijing. Uh, and I think all that would be what I would call a withdrawal from Afghanistan on steroids, uh, and that would weaken the United States and be contrary to the national security interest of the United States. So beyond the military aid that clearly is making a difference and would, in the absence thereof from the United States, this would have an immense uh, implication for the battlefield itself, it seems to me that you're also arguing that transatlantic unity is key in defeating Putin, essentially, and maintaining solidarity and security on the two sides, that on the two sides of the Atlantic, that one doesn't go without the other. So. Beyond the military aid, um, let me also ask you about your plan, the Rasmussen plan, um, for Ukraine's NATO membership. You laid it out at the end of 2023, and it's more than timely with NATO's 75th um, year summit in Washington just a few months away. So at this point, a couple of months after you've laid it out, um, can you tell us a little bit about First of all, the reception of your proposal uh, on the two sides of the Atlantic, and also 
in if this doesn't get through, which seems to me um, the a good uh, plan to go forward beyond military aid and end the war, what alternatives do we have from NATO's side for Ukraine in the absence of this plan? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, let me describe it this way. Um, the work on Ukraine um, uh, goes uh, through three different lanes. First, we have to deliver all the weapons Ukraine needs. Uh, with, we should lift all restrictions on weapon deliveries. No self-imposed restrictions. We should give them everything they need to win the war. So, instead of saying we will support Ukraine as long as it takes, we should say we will give the Ukrainians what it takes to win the war, as much as it takes. That's the first Second strand of work is security guarantees. Uh, last year, President Zelensky asked me to co-chair an international group, together with his chief of staff, Andrei Yermak, to prepare proposals as to how we can guarantee the security of uh, Ukraine in the future. We presented to President Zelensky in September last year um, a set of proposals called the Kiev Security Compact. The core of that is to make Ukraine more capable to defend itself by itself, by helping them build such a strong military that they can withstand all future Russian attacks. And I'm pleased to see that on the sidelines of the NATO summit last year in Vilnius, a number of allies uh, agreed on what I would call an umbrella deal under which Bilateral negotiations will take place on bilateral security guarantees between uh, Ukraine and different allies. And last week, the UK concluded its uh, security agreement uh, with uh, Ukraine. And um, a couple of days ago, President uh, Macron of France announced that he will go to Kiev uh, to sign a similar security agreement between France and Ukraine. And I think the Canadians are in the pipeline to uh, conclude their uh, security agreement. So this is a second strand of work, a lot of security agreements. And then the third is the long-term goal, Ukraine should join NATO. And I hope an, ex an invitation could be extended to uh, Ukraine uh, already at the NATO summit uh, in uh, Washington DC in July, because as you mentioned, it's the 75th anniversary Jubilee summit, so it would be appropriate to use that as a political platform for launching um, the perspective of Ukrainian membership of uh, NATO. But I can tell you that's uphill. There is a lot of skepticism across the board, so we have to prepare it carefully uh, and uh, I'm now working with the Ukrainians as to how we can prepare that. Can we talk a bit about the European side of the equation, the, uh, the, the domestic European politics of the Ukraine war, and in particular uh, the, the European view of American politics? It does sort of seem to me that the, the one domino that has to be 
well in place for any of this to, to turn out well is for the United States to maintain its traditional leadership role and to step forward on Ukraine. But I, it's very difficult to track uh, from here how you know what European beliefs are about that. Um, and I'm asking a lot. I don't ask for a you know a, a simplistic answer, but maybe asking which countries are most concerned about uh, American willpower and and which are more confident uh, about it. Yeah, uh, in Europe we are following uh, American domestic politics closely because uh, it's it's not only uh, I, I mean um, a presidential election uh, in in uh, the U.S. Uh, has consequences beyond Pennsylvania. It also affects Paris. So. Uh, we have to follow it closely, and obviously uh, we are very much concerned about ensuring continued American global leadership. We know from history that when the Americans retreat, the bad guys advance. And when uh, the U.S. demonstrates leadership, then the bad guys retreat. So put it in another way, we need a global policeman to speak very openly about it. And the US is the only power on earth with the capability and the global wits to exercise that function. And all the conflicts you see around the world right now, they are consequences of American retreat or a reduced uh, commitment. Middle East, it's a disastrous example of what happens when the US tries to withdraw. So whether you like it or not, the United States is a unique superpower that has global responsibilities. So this is the common view in, in Europe, more in Eastern Europe and Northern Europe than maybe in the South of Europe, but basically we all realize uh, that we need a very strong transatlantic alliance. We need NATO as a cornerstone of uh, uh, transatlantic and uh, North Atlantic uh, security. But it goes beyond that. I think we have also in Europe a, a responsibility and obligation to help uh, the US in the ways we can when it comes to uh, the Chinese uh, challenge. I would like to push you a little bit on that, but, but before I do that, I wanted to share a little metaphor with you that I heard at the dinner party last night about the interconnected nature of, of the world's conflicts and about why this idea that the United States can abandon Ukraine to focus on the Indo-Pacific is just plain crazy. I mean, and the metaphor is very simple. It is akin to the idea of trying to get a better mortgage rate with your bank by stopping to pay your other bills by defaulting on your credit card and then going to the bank and saying, look, you know, I'm not paying any other bills, not paying for my electricity, I'm focusing on paying my mortgage rate. And it just, you know, it doesn't really work that way 
in you know family finances, and it doesn't work that way when it comes to global leadership. But just just to go back to the most recent point that you made about uh, the need for a global policeman, uh, you know there is a decent chance that in the U.S. election in November, uh, Donald Trump will be elected, and that unlike in the first Trump term, uh, there'll be you know many fewer adults in the room and many fewer people in the administration who do share the belief uh, that, that America's leadership is necessary and, and, and benign force in the world. Uh, what is, you know, the plan B for Denmark, for Europe at large, uh, in ensuring its own security? Is it, you know, trying to do what, what Europeans were doing during the first Trump term, namely to reason with, with Trump and the Trump administration trying to, as you are doing, so well, you know, trying to talk some sense into MAGA Republicans, or is it really to dramatically step up its own deterrent power, you know, Europeanize France's nuclear deterrent, you know, come up with a European military and, and, and genuine strategic autonomy, genuine sight and vendor at the, at the European level? I mean, much as it's very difficult to imagine a scenario like that. Uh, I think these are the sort of conversations that Europeans ought to be ought to be having. What's 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 your take on what Europe's plan B might look like? I would put it this way: whoever might be elected uh, to the White House in November, we should step up uh, our efforts uh, in Europe to take care of our own security. This is a prerequisite uh, for creating more peace and stability, uh, not only in Europe, but uh, globally. And we are on the right track. Uh, in the autumn of 2014, we decided in NATO that within the next decade, all allies should live up to the 2% target, that is to invest at least 2% of their GDP in defense. At that time, only three allies lived up to that commitment, namely the US, UK, and Greece. Now, by the end of 23, it was 11. And by the end of 24, I think it would be 15 or 16, uh, and even more by the end of 2025. So we, we have to do more, but we are on uh, the right track. Uh, so I think whoever will be elected, this will be a trend. Uh, for instance, in uh, the no all Nordic countries have now uh, ag agreed on bilateral bilateral security agreements uh, with the US, in addition to uh, our NATO membership. So Finland, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark have uh, made. Um, bilateral security agreement that will allow the U.S. to deploy both troops and military equipment on our soil. It's it's really a, a huge change of attitudes in Northern Europe. You might call it a Plan B, but uh, it's it's it is <laughs> um, a plan actually to strengthen the transatlantic ties. Whoever might occupy. Uh, the White House uh, after the November uh, elections. Finally, 
in the case uh, that uh, Trump is elected president, I think he needs to take into account that within his own party there is a strong camp uh, of what I would call classical Republicans representing the view that we need uh, American global leadership. I would, for instance, I would point to the joint um, uh, plan uh, for victory in Ukraine elaborated by three prominent Republican committee leaders in Congress, the leaders of Foreign Policy Committee, Armed Services Committee, the Intelligence Committee. I have read that plan with great interest and I couldn't agree more. Their point of departure is that uh, we are confronted with the most dangerous array of adversaries since the Second World War. So they propose to step up our support for Ukraine uh, to make sure that Putin will not get any success. Uh, they argue this is the true national security interest of the US. So within the Republican Party you have those different camps. So I'm, I mean, whenever I meet Congress I see a strong bipartisan support for continued uh, assistance to Ukraine. So I think there are also limitations as to how much a Trump administration can reduce its commitment to Ukraine. Mr. Rasmussen, before we let you go, I'll take the prerogative of asking, squeezing in one last question. Um, we've moved from <laughs> we've moved from the west eastward into Ukraine, and um, I want to ask you specifically about Russia. Uh, in about reading Putin. You were Secretary General of NATO when uh, Putin first invaded Ukraine. And the question is basically, how did you assess his intentions vis-a-vis -vis European security at large at that time? And where does this leave Europe now? Do you reckon that Putin is now content or do you see him posing beyond Ukraine a wider threat? I've always had a very tense relationship uh, with Putin. That dates back uh, to uh, 2002 uh, when I took uh, the rotating presidency of the European Union. We negotiated uh, the big enlargement of the European Union and in that uh, respect we also had to, to deal with some uh, Russian issues. We had negotiations I had directly uh, contact uh, with uh, Putin. Uh, so we have t had tense relations ever since and when I took office as Secretary General of NATO in my first meeting with Putin uh, he said to me you should abolish NATO it's a relic from uh, the Cold War. So this is in a nutshell his view of uh, European security. So if he gets any success uh, in Ukraine, he, will, he won't stop. Next uh, goal would be Moldova, then Georgia, and eventually he would also put pressure on the Baltic states. Maybe he wouldn't uh, attack them directly because they're members of NATO, uh, but he would put pressure on them and it, it could risk a direct war between uh, NATO uh, and uh, Russia. So my conclusion is we have to stay firm 
because Putin considers all concessions as a weakness uh, that he can exploit. So we shouldn't demonstrate any weakness. On the contrary, we have to stay firm. We should learn from history that appeasement with dictators does not lead to peace. It leads to war and conflict. So the best way to stop Putin is to um, let him suffer an outright defeat in Ukraine. It is to allow Ukraine to join NATO so that we have Ukraine as a bulwark as uh, uh, towards an aggressive uh, Russia. We need a new European security architecture to ensure permanent peace and stability uh, on the European continent. We couldn't have hoped for a better ending. Anders von Rasmussen, many thanks for joining the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. From me, Julia Zorza, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Dalibur Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter or X at Eastern Front Pod and sign up for the newsletter included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye. Thank you.